again, friends. Welcome on to episode 195 of the SCO Show, proudly a part of the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network and brought to you by the great folks at SB Nation. My name is Mark Schofield, back in the big chair for today, Thursday, May 20th, 2021. I'm going to do a couple of things here today. The bulk of this show is going to be my interview with Thor Nystrom from NBC Sports Edge, formerly Rota World. I will say, the rebrand to NBC Sports Edge, it's taken a while for me to get used to. Maybe it's because, you know, I'm a man, I'm 44, a bit older, a bit more set in my ways, but it's always going to be Rota World to me. But Thor is fantastic. I'm sure you will agree, if you don't already. Um... Brilliant football mom. We had a long-ranging discussion about a bunch of different things, so we're going to get into that a little bit later in the show. First up, we're going to do a little bit of the Brian Hoyer stuff and then a little bit about you know what's coming down the pike from me um, over the next couple of weeks or so. But before we do any of that, your usual cavalcade reminders, please do follow along with the hijinks on the Stakem app at Mark Schofield on Twitter. Check out the work, uh, USA Today, Touchdown Wire. I'm doing sort of a summer study series on flexbone off- offenses because why not? Um, did a piece on orbit motion, return orbit, orbit return motion, and how those offensive playbooks use that. I'm um, working on something right now on your traditional sort of double, triple option, variations therein, um, which probably come out on sometime on Thursday. Um, you know, check that out if you like. Also, other places, Big Blue View, Bleeding Green Nation, uh, Pat's Pulpit right here at The Pulpit. Let's talk briefly Brian Hoyer, which... Really shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. Um, why? Well, four quarterbacks, right? Yeah, I'll have four quarterbacks. Cam Newton, Mac Jones, Jared Stidham, and now Brian Hoyer. And here's the sort of nuts and bolts, behind-the-scenes, foundational stuff. Sometimes you need four quarterbacks to run a training camp, to run OTAs, to run practices. You know, Evan Lazar tweeted this out when the Patriots made the move. And it's exactly right. There are times when you will have your ones on offense versus the twos on defense, your twos on defense versus, I mean, your twos on offense versus the ones on defense. And so you might have at that point, Mac and Cam with the ones, Stidham with the twos, and you might have a completely separate drill. You might have an inside uh, inside run drill going where you need a fourth quarterback where Brian Holler can do that. Or you can flip those four quarterbacks around and, in different ways. And so if you've got a seven on seven Skelly, ones versus twos, you'll have three quarterbacks doing that. And then you might have an inside run drill, like I said, with Brian Hoyer running that as well. And so this isn't really, I know that a lot of it has been made of, oh, this is a warded shot to quarterback X or, or quarterback Y. I wouldn't read too much into it. This is a, we need four quarterbacks right now to sort of run things. And now maybe, look, maybe this is, an, a lot of people have said this is a, a warning shot for Stidham in that, you know, if, if you go with the young quarterback in Mac Jones, maybe you want Brian Hoyer behind him. You know, maybe some people have said it's a warning shot to Cam. If you go with Mac Jones, you're going to want Brian Hoyer. You'll keep Stidham around as your practice squad guy. That means Cam's the guy on the outside looking in. I wouldn't read anything into, like, roster moves of this kind. You know, if they traded Cam, that might mean something. And speaking of trades, we did wake up to news on Wednesday. Um, some various reporting around that the Texans were inquiring about Jared Stidham. 
I think, look, if you know, you're know you their new manager, general manager who has just come from New England and you see the Patriots draft a quarterback in the first round and you have yet to even make a pick, you might pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, what would it be? What would it cost to get sort of Jared Stidham? You might not need him. I think the fact that the Texans then turned around and drafted Davis Mills with their first pick in the draft at the top of the third round probably tells you where those conversations went. And so that is also something that I probably wouldn't read much into. But we all know that, look, th- this organization is probably going to make moves and do things between now and the start of training camp. Columns will be written. Podcasts will be recorded. Radio shows will be aired. But I wouldn't try to read a lot into the moves that are coming. And with respect to the Brian Horry thing, I really do think it's sort of a camp depth kind of thing more than anything else. Before we get to the interview with Thor, I do want to take a moment to remind everybody, look, this is it from me for a while. Um, you're going to get next week into Memorial Day weekend. I'm taking some time off. Um, that first, you know, last day in May, which is Memorial Day, the 31st, and then that week of June, also taking that one off. I will be back after that, okay? So this is the last sort of show you're getting from me for a while. And, and here's the deal. It, this isn't just a, you know, it's been a grind and I'm taking some time. I've been open and honest with everybody that, look, you know, I've had some some struggles with depression and anxiety and all that stuff. And I'm not saying that I'm there right now, um, but I need some time. I, I, I do need some time. Um, I'm not going to go into it more than that, um, but I need a little bit of, of decompressing time. Because I will, I will just say that the past week or so, things have kind of taken a toll, um, and I need some sort of st- some time and space. Um, a lot of the, the Mac Jones discussion has kind of gone down a road, interestingly enough, on Twitter and elsewhere. That I need some time, um, so I will be back, like I said, um, with shows in June. But this is the last one for me. I'm going to sort of step away from this. I'm going to still keep writing and I'll be around in Slack and Twitter and stuff like that. But I'm really sort of taking some space here because as a wise man once said, take care of your all chicken, take care of your all mentals. And right now I need to take care of the mentals. Um, so yeah, you'll you'll get a new show from me back um, in, in June. But until then, the last you will hear from me is coming up next, my discussion with Thor Nystrom. Uh, from NBC Sports Edge. That's ahead here at episode 195 of The Sco Show. And welcome back to The Sco Show. Mark Schofield with you. And it's been a while since we've had a guest. And so I figured who better to talk to than somebody who is not just one of the lead draft analysts at NBC Sports Edge. He's not just a lead college football analyst. He's also one of the best dinner companions in all of the football media space. You can follow him on Twitter at T-H-O-R-K-U. You know who he is. He's Thor Nystrom. Thor, buddy. What's going on, my friend? Let's go. It's awesome to join you, man. It's it's great to have you here. And I want to do a couple of different things while I've got you. But the first is to just sort of take a step back. I, I know we're all living that sort of post-draft life right now where things are, are a bit slower. And it gives us time to sort of digest and analyze things properly. Your sort of big picture takeaway from this draft, like whatever, wherever you want to go with it, explore the studio space, your big picture takeaways. 
My big picture takeaway was that there was less information on the prospects in this draft than any class before it. I mean, since certainly than anyone that was scouting it had ever seen before. I found a funny uh, quote from Gil Brandt where he compared it to the, the, the draft right after the war. So I guess that would be the one comparable thing in terms of, you know, um, you know, tape on, you know, less last season of tape on the players and stuff like that. Um, but this class in terms of a modern class um, for me, I mean, like, yeah, less final season of tape than, than any on, on the prospects in any class before it, there was no NFL combine um, teams had to get the testing numbers from the pro days themselves. Prospects could only test once because of the no combine thing. They weren't on the same surface. You know, they, it was all on different surfaces. So, so that whole thing was, you know, kind of a, a crapshoot as well. Um, and then the teams couldn't get onto campuses to meet with the prospects or see them in person, go to the practices, stuff like that. So teams had less intel than they ever did before. And I think that there's a couple different interesting manifestations of this on, on draft day. I think we saw a few more surprise guys jump up at the end than, than we were expecting. And then a few more guys fall and then a few more guys fall like shockers fall out completely out of the draft than, than we're used to seeing. And then I, I think, you know, with the individual teams, what you saw is some teams trusted their read of, of this class that, I think you could argue, and, and I certainly have, that this class is just as talented as um, the past couple of classes, including I mean, not just at the top, but down to 500. Um, but like, so, you know, like, you know, obviously this class did not have many more than 500 prospects. I'm talking about, you know, through the draft and into UDFA. And some teams, I think they just sort of, you know, with the limited intel that we had on this prospect pool, they basically decided to isolate their focus on the guys that they had more intel on. And I, I think with those teams, you saw that, that they didn't want to make as many picks this year. They didn't want to sign as many, you know, as big of a UDFA class as maybe they typically would because they want to fill their 90-man roster pre-camp with more known quantities as opposed to just throwing darts on kids that maybe you've seen, you know, five games over the last two years of a kid or something like that or 10 games of a kid over the last two years and you haven't seen one in the last calendar year. Um, so that was one of the interesting manifestations and, and the Patriots, you know, in, in, in your neck of the woods, that's, they were one of the interesting ones. They became the, the first team of the last three years that I've studied UDFA classes that did not sign a UDFA on Saturday night after the draft. And just the third class of the last three years, UDFA class, that was just a one man class. And of course theirs was, was just Quinn Nordeen. And so I think, you know, a team like the Patriots, you know, with, again, with, with, with this this prospect pool where you had less information on it, I think that was an indication that, that they wanted to give their, you know, the lower on down spots in camp. They wanted to give it to, to players, um, you know, mostly players, but prospects as well that they had more intel on. And sort of turn into the Patriots then, Thor. Do you think that their draft class is sort of reflective of what you were just talking about? Because you look at their draft class and forget the players who they are for a second. Just look at the schools, Alabama, Alabama, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Michigan, Missouri, Colorado, like their first seven picks, power five schools, known relationships, obviously with Michigan, with Alabama. Do you think that their sort of draft class is reflective of the information they had? And that's sort of what you were talking about there, that they're trusted their intel and trusted their sources and their gut. I think that's very well said. Yeah. Not, not every single guy that they took um, played a complete season last year, of course, but the ones that they did take that opted out, I thought they got good values on them, you know, relative to the slot that they were taking. 
And your point is a really good one. The guys they did take a chance on in that scenario where, where you, you know, you either didn't have tape last year or the limited amount of tape, they were leaning on some of their prime contacts and contacts that we know that the Patriots have. And they obviously had guys in very high places that vouched for those specific kids. Of course, I've got to ask you about the pick at 15, Mac Jones. What were your sort of thoughts about that? Do you think this is a good landing spot for Jones? Do you think that was a good value selection by the Patriots? Do you think they reached? Like, where do you come down on the sort of Mac Jones debate? Yeah, I do. Like, you know, I, I thought it was I thought it was a, a, a solid pick. You know, I, I had him rated it just a little bit lower. I had him rated 25th overall, but you know, I mean, Sco, you know this, you pay a premium for a quarterback when you need yeah. a quarterback in, in the NFL, particularly now, you know, with, with the way that the salary cap structure changed with, with the pick slot money and, and what a cheat code it is to have a rookie or I'm sorry, a, a starting quarterback on a rookie deal. Now uh, you, you, you know, that that's a position you can pay a premium for what, you know, the, the entire draft process, I felt bad because I, you know, it's sort of like I was dogging Mac Jones because I, I kept having to respond to the narrative that he was going to be the third pick, which I thought was a joke. But at the 15th pick, that's not a joke. You know, I mean, like, again, like just in isolation, I would have had him 25th on my board. And I'll tell you what, Sco, if I needed a, a long-term quarterback as bad as New England did, and I had the track record for guys that run systems really well, like like New England does, um, I certainly would have taken Mac Jones at 15 as well. Do you feel like a lot of the Mac Jones discourse was really sort of shaped by that trade? Like if we went through this draft cycle and San Francisco stuck at 12 and they didn't trade up to three, there was no discussion of Mac Jones at three overall. Do you think the idea of Mac Jones coming off the board at 15 would have been okay? Yeah, that makes complete sense. But the fact that the 49ers went up, it sort of reshaped the entire narrative around this kid. One million percent, you know, and I think it speaks to, you know, like, right, you know, like I've said, I, I think that that what the 49ers did, you know, Shanahan and Lynch, it, it was the great, greatest smokescreen in NFL draft history. And I think it speaks to the power of it. When you look at a kid like Mac Jones, who just in a vacuum, I mean, like, you know, forget all the nonsense you heard over all those months leading up to it. Just look in a vacuum of the top five quarterbacks. Mac Jones is a solid player. He's a very, very solid player. Yeah. But of those five guys, he was fifth in, in, you know, a lot of the different metrics that you would look at. And certainly to, to almost everyone that you would pull in a room was, was fifth out of the five. He also had the least uh, polarizing of the games, you know, you know, of, of, of those guys, that, you know, outside of Lawrence, I, I, I suppose. But um, he wasn't a guy that you would have argued that much about in a normal year. Like it, it, in a regular year where the 49ers didn't do that, Mac Jones probably would have been the least discussed of these top five quarterbacks by far. And then he would have slid to the Patriots. Everyone would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's a solid pick, you know, whatever. But because of the, the narrative thing, it, it inflated Mac Jones's import such that, you know, all of a sudden he was, well, he wasn't having to compete with the narrative, but there, there was like these dueling narratives going on with Mac Jones, one of which existed in reality, and one of which was literally just smoke and mirrors coming from the 49ers. Then it was amplified by the media, you know, after that. I wanted to ask you about their picks on day two, Christian Barmore, Ronnie Perkins. I said prior to this draft that Barmore at 15 was probably in play for New England. Then they trade up and they get him at the top of the second round. But Perkins and Barmore, do you think that's like the most Belichickian draft ever? 
<laughs> yeah, in, in, in a couple different ways. Um, the number one way is picking off steals. Barmore was one of the, one of the enormous steals of the entire draft. Um, he would have for sure been the biggest steal of, of, of day two and perhaps the, the entire draft had a Wusu Koromoa not fallen, you know, in, in there as well. But you talk about like, you know, you were, you were mentioning him as, you know, for the Patriots in the first round. I, I did a bunch of mock drafts, you know, and, you know, beforehand and stuff like that. That was the spot where you would start to, you know, look at Barmore going off the board. Um, and a lot of my, um, uh, the ones that I ended up doing, I ended up giving him to the Browns um, because the Browns obviously needed an interior player. And then the way that the board fell, that fourth cornerback in a four cornerback type class where then it dropped a tier, th- he was available to the Browns when nobody thought he would be there, Greg Newsome. Yeah. And I think if Greg Newsome had not been there, I think there's a real shot that Christian Barmore goes to the Cleveland Browns in the first round. And that would have shaken up a bunch of things. Cause then I think the Packers take Greg Newsom instead of Stokes, you know, you would have had this little cascade effect there. Um, but like, you know, Barmore falls through and, you know, j- just in terms of this class, I mean, you know, I-, I obviously had him, you know, IDL one or whatever, and it wasn't a good IDL class, but Barmore clearly stood above the other guys. I mean, he- he's the only guy in this class where it's like, you can see a clear path to start him with him, you know, the, the flashes he shows. And one cool thing that I liked about Barmore, um, you remember Skull, like the uh, evaluation of Chase on the, yeah. the year before. And it was always like, you know, you watch Chase on on the field and it's like, yeah, that, you know, this kid's got a lot of tools and stuff like that. You'd see the flashes occasionally, but heading into his last season, it's like, you know, he was getting mocked like in the top, you know, 15 or the top 20, you know, of a lot of these different things. And I was just like, man, I just haven't seen it enough, you know, like, a, a, you know, it's just this Gumby guy off the, off the edge and he can take the outside shoulder, but I just haven't seen the production enough. But at the end of that season, when, you know, when LSU was during their title run or whatever, Michael divinity goes down and then, you know, they leaned on chase on even more in a pass rushing role. And he just started to dominate. What I really appreciated about Barmore was we'd seen the flashes earlier in his career in a rotational role. Um, and, and early in the season as well. But down the stretch, he really started to take over. That's why I thought he had locked himself into round one. But because of the way the circumstances went there at the end, at the, at the end of round one, he ends up falling into round two. And, and you just applaud the, the Patriots. It's just a brilliant move at, at that point. You're, you're getting a first-round guy in the second round. Do you have any sort of takes on the, you know, the day three guys, you know, you had Ramondre Stevenson, you had, you know, some other players that they fit in there. Any takes on the deeper guys? My favorite one of them is Ramondre Stevenson. And I was heartbroken. I'm, I'm go, as you know, I'm coming to you from Minneapolis. Yep. I was heartbroken that the, the Vikings have picked before they decided to take a running back, which fair enough. They took Keenan Wongu, the, you know, the guy who popped because of his pro day numbers at, at Iowa state. A pick later that the Patriots took Ramondre Stevenson, who was who was my boy, you know, outside of the the, the top tier of running backs in, in this class. Ramondre Stevenson, you want to talk about another guy that just took off at the end of the season. When he came back off a of suspension this year, not, not only did he dominate every single game that, that he played in, when, when you look at the two early mock drafts from after this past draft and you see Spencer Rattler, number one, in every single one, understand at the beginning of last season Spencer Rattler was not playing like that Spencer Rattler was he was up and down at the beginning of last season once Ramondre Stevenson got into that lineup that's when Spencer Rattler jumped up 
because now defenses couldn't just, you know, stick everyone back and do the thing that people do against Mike Leach and just litter eight guys out there. Um, they, they had to bring people up into the box. And now all of a sudden you had spacing, you know, and down the field in the intermediate area, whatever. And Spencer Rattler started to make people pay. And, and now he's going to be the, you know, the presumptive number one pick next year. What, what I really love about Stevenson is it, it's the big hammer back but what, what, what differentiates him for me, like among guys in that phylum is tremendous feet. He's got mm-hmm. tremendous feet. And so when, when you watch Ramondre Stevenson, what you'll notice is going up to the contact point, any dude that's about to, you know, like think of two, you know, Rams about to batter each other, like any guy that, 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 that is descending upon him, they got to bring their hammer and their lunch pail to have any shot. Ramondre Stevenson with those guys, you know, when they're bearing down and, and squaring up and, and going down, you know, to, to, you know, to, to hit them or whatever, he can change their angle and of, of, of his target, make what would be a, a flush hit, an off-target hit, j- just by a little shimmy of his feet. Um, and then he, from there, he has the contact balance. And so he's constantly, um, you know, in these situations where, um, you know, just because of that, that short area agility, it's just a very subtle thing. Um, but where, you know, again, where, where these flush targets, they become off target hits of linebackers and safeties. You're not taking them down with maybe one guy period, but especially in it, it, it you know, in those circumstances, the other thing is his acceleration going downhill is really good. P- people nitpick him because of the lack of speed. And, and that, that's fair. You know, I mean, like he, he's not going to run for, he's not going to have any explosive touchdowns in the NFL. Neither is, is Najee Harris, by the way, who is, you know, the, the, the first one taken, um, you know, you're not going to get that in his game. Um, but you know, the other stuff you absolutely are, he's, he's awesome. You know, between the tackles, you want to watch a game of him, watch the Florida bowl game. He just absolutely destroys Florida. He, he, he's one of those funny guys who has, he has so much power. It's like, Guys that get around him, de- defenders, you touch him. It's like you get zapped, you know, l- like an electrical fence. You get too close. Um, it, 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 it's the power thing with the feet, with the contact bounce. And by the way, he's a better receiver than, than people give him credit for. One other thing I'll say is he got dinged for off-field problems. His off-field problems are not what they were made up to be. He failed one marijuana test, one singular marijuana test at Oklahoma, and he got punitively punished for it. He, you know, he got suspended at the end of the season before uh, the bowl game, et cetera. And then into this season, you know, the first, you know, whatever it was, three, four games or whatever, um, his junior college coach said he never, he never failed one drug test here. He, I never had one problem with him. Ramondre Stevenson's one of my favorite players that I ever coached. Um, so I'm a huge fan of that kid. To, to me, he was a day two, more of a day two kind of a guy. Patriots fans are going to love hearing all of that from you, Thor. I wanted to sort of shift gears here as we sort of come to a close. I know you spent the bulk of your last week looking at all the UDFA signings, grading all the UDFA classes. I know you put together two mammoth pieces on these signings. What were your sort of thoughts on the UDFA classes as a whole? I know we saw some, some look, Marvin Wilson, you mentioned the all too early mock drafts that we're doing right now, Spencer Rattler and all that stuff. Marvin Wilson was a first rounder this time last year. He goes undrafted. What were your takeaways on the UDFA classes? Yeah, so this goes back to like the, the the draft class as a whole, where because of that limited intel, I think guys that had more intel on them got pulled up. You know, like in you know in the draft where they were winning tiebreakers over these guys that that had that had less, or guys that had you know some of these acute um, 
you know, where the NFL felt they had a concern on him, they were losing tiebreakers uh, down the board. Marvin Wilson's a good example of that. Marvin Wilson's actually sort of the opposite example of what I've been talking about, where Marvin Wilson's one of the few guys that did not opt out who absolutely should have. If Marvin Wilson had opted out, he's a mid-round pick at worst. He's probably a a day two pick. Um, And who knows, maybe even ends up going in round one. But, um, you know, like with him, it was, you know, he had he had three bad games last year. He had a, a, you know, an injury that ended it early. And then he had the thing with Norvell where he corrected Norvell, you know, after the the George Floyd stuff. Um, The the rest of the class, it was it it was specific things like that, where it was like, you know, the NFL had less tape on these guys. And if they had one other thing on their profile that made the NFL skittish at all, they were gone. You know, for another great example, Kate Johnson. Kate Johnson is going to be a really good slot receiver in the NFL for a long time. He goes undrafted, which even after the senior ball would have been stunning. I mean, you, you could have pulled 10 people at the senior ball. Tom would have said a million percent. This kid gets drafted, but he's, you know, he, he's, he was coming from the smaller school. Of course, the FCS canceled their season in 2020. And then um, he goes to his, his pro day workout. We mentioned there, there was no combine. So you only get one bite at the apple and his 40 was okay, but the rest of his tests weren't good. And the NFL is like, man, eh, you didn't play last year. You're from a small school. You had a bad pro day. That's it. And so, so you, you had you had instances like that where guys that I think in any other draft class, you know, g- going back where, you know, it's because all you have to do is think of a reality where COVID just never happened. Right. right. Like if COVID never happens, Kate Johnson goes and shreds the FCS again. You know, this past year, he has a long playoff run. You know, he puts up bazooka numbers and, then you know, he's going to get to go to the combine, presumably his tests over the two are a little bit better than his, his one over the one. He's also going to impress teams there in the same way that he impressed them at the senior bowl. Um, but there, you know, again, there was numerous instances of this. Our Darius Washington, I didn't think should have gone undrafted. He, he was a measurable guy. They, they did have tape on him. Um, Matt Bushman's another example of a guy they didn't have tape on last year. Um, he was injured, but you, you can just look through these guys. The UDFA class, I thought this year was better than the past two. And, and the reason is because, of that thing I'm talking about where I thought there was reaches for guys that the NFL had more information on some of these guys that they had less on filtered out. Jamie Newman's a great example. Jamie Newman had an awesome season in 2019 for Wake Forest. He was number two in the nation in, in PFF charted big time throws behind Trevor Lawrence. He's also, you know, a, a, a big uh, dual threat kind of a guy that, you know, outside of the pocket and stuff like that can, can win and whatnot he was going to transfer to Georgia, which would have been awesome because yeah. Newman's an awesome downfield thrower with him and George Pickens. I mean, like Georgia has the offensive line and the running game as well. And they have some secondary receivers and McKitty, of course, but George Pickens and him specifically would have just absolutely destroyed the SEC. But then of course, Newman ends up opting out. So instead of locking himself into day two, which is, I, I'm telling you, that's what would have happened if he would have been Georgia's starting quarterback. He ends up going undrafted because the NFL is just like, oh, he didn't play last year. We don't have tape on him. That that happened a whole bunch. And because of that, I think the UDFA class was was really strong this year. Thor, let me get, get you out of here on this one. We're recording this on Wednesday. And there's been a lot of discussion about deep threats in the passing game on the timeline today. And we all probably know <laughs> why. And as you pointed out earlier, you are coming to us from Minneapolis. So I'm going to let you get you out of here on this and give me your thoughts on Randy Moss, the deep threat. There's, there's no comparison with Randy Moss as a deep threat. In, in my opinion, you know, at the peak of their powers, he is the best receiver of all time. I don't know that anyone competes with him. I, I, I Megatron's the only guy that for, for me that you could put up there in terms of that, the deep threat thing though, for me, that's not even a discussion. 
like you look at any of the numbers, you know, I, I, I had this one stat where it was like, um, you know, in NFL history, guys that have had 50 or more touchdowns before their 26th birthday of, of you know, of, of all those guys, there's only one of them who who on all those touchdowns averaged over 18 yards per touchdown. It's Randy Moss that he averaged over 33. And that was early in his career. That was before he was playing with Tom, you know, he got to play with Tom Brady and stuff like that. That was with, you know, Brad Johnson and Jeff George and Randall Cunningham. And yet they had great seasons. It was played with Randy Boss. Randy Boss made everyone around him better. You know, it's just like, um, he, he was just a totally different thing. And of course, the, the thing I was responding to today was there was a, a take on PFF that, that Tyree Kill could be the best, you know, downfield guy of all time. Um, you could certainly make the case that, that in, in today's NFL, um, you know, Tyreek Hill could be the best uh, deep ball guy for sure. Um, but there is no comparison in terms of downfield threat in NFL history be- between Randy Moss and Tyreek. It, it's not even close. Tyreek Hill didn't even have to face the same sort of coverages that Randy Moss did. If you didn't have two guys on Randy Moss deep, you're done. You're, it was either going to be a touchdown or a defensive pass interference. If it's one-on-one deep, that's it. That's why they had a, a play of the Vikings playbook that was throw it up to Randy and why they had the Randy ratio and all that sort of stuff. Like we, you know, a talent like that, it just doesn't exist. You know, the, the next time we see a, a guy like Randy Moss, it'll be the second time in NFL history. That's fantastic stuff, Thor. Before you go, buddy, please, the microphone is yours. Plug away. Let people know where to find you, what you're working on, what you've got going over at NBC Sports Edge right now. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Thorku, T-H-O-R-K-U, and at NBC Sports Edge. Um, I, I did the deep dives on, on the UDFA classes um, this week, so so check those out. I have one on the AFC, one on, on the NFC, and that was a lot of fun to, to jump down there into the weeds and do those. Well, fantastic stuff as always, my friend. We'll be catching up with you soon, folks. That will do it for this episode. Remember, we are off now until post-Memorial Day, so go spend some time with your families. Go do all the fun stuff. We will be back after Memorial Day talking football again. Until then, friends, stay safe. Wash those hands. And when you do, sit along and bless those Patriots reigns down in Foxborough.